Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Sabrina Horn, author of Make It, Don't Fake It, founder and CEO of Horn Strategy, and formerly the CEO and founder of the Horn Group, a Silicon Valley pioneer in B2B technology public relations. Today, we will be covering three main topics. First, the B2B technology landscape evolution from a PR perspective. Second, the founder's curse, blinded by the vision or the journey. And third, authentic leadership, learning by losing. Sabrina, it's so nice to catch up with you again. Please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Certainly. And thank you for having me here, Ray. It's great to be on your podcast. My background is essentially beginning with being the only child of German immigrants infused with a instinct for survival and an entrepreneurial spirit. I started my own firm at the age of 29 with four years of experience and ultimately became a PR advisor to thousands of tech executives and their companies in Silicon Valley. I'm also a single mom to two amazing daughters. And currently now I'm an advisor to other executives, to entrepreneurs, to help them navigate the early stages of their businesses. And I am an author. That is so exciting. And I just last week finished reading your book, Make It, Don't Fake It. And that's what I want to dig into today, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. Well, you know, I remember being introduced to you back in the 1990s by, I think, a mutual dear friend, M.R. Ragaswamy, then another friend, Bob Wright, said, oh, you got to talk to Sabrina Horn and the Horn Group regarding PR. And they were saying that you really were the person who took PeopleSoft from a 50-person early-stage company to helping them become the largest and most brand-aware ERP and HR software company I know. So let me ask you a question. So you started thinking that you were going to help software companies take advantage of the PC revolution. How has PR changed today in today's B2B tech landscape? Well, yeah. I mean, so that was 30 years ago, right? And things have definitely evolved since then. I would say a few things. PR was much more of a tactical marketing function back then. It was about getting ink and column inches and putting out lots of press releases. And there were probably a handful of PR firms back then that were considered strategic. I think the PR industry has figured out how to provide more value over the last several decades to the tech industry. And I would challenge listeners to think about a couple of things, right? It's much more about outcomes now than it is about outputs. It's about risk assessment and identifying threats and opportunities, not just what's happening in the news cycle later on today. Crisis, as we now have seen in the last year, is very much a part of the job these days. And that alone requires a more strategic approach. And I personally know many communications executives who've now earned a seat at the board level. So that coupled with the fact that technology, particularly on the B2B side, has become 
even more complex than it was back then in the 1990s. And companies need PR to simplify their stories, to elevate their messages, and articulate a different kind of value proposition. It's not anymore about like who you are and that you're the leader of blah, blah, blah. You have to articulate what's the problem that you solve. So it's as much about being a business person as it is about being a good communicator. That's interesting because I work with a lot of B2B SaaS founders and CEOs and typically around 5 million at the low end up to about 50 million is my sweet spot. And one of the biggest kind of strategic decisions I hear being discussed a lot is, should we invest in a PR firm? How could I measure the return on PR? Is it more than just getting ink with the trade press or the business press? So Sabrina, before we pivot and go into the book, How would you tell CEO to measure the return on their PR investment today? How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, 30 minutes, but you got two minutes for this one, Sabrina. Well, I mean, so that's like the holy grail, right? Like everybody always is like, how do you measure the ROI of PR? Because it's so difficult to measure. I would suggest the following. First of all, start off by asking yourself two questions. What do you want to accomplish with PR? What's your business objective? And then ask yourself, what does success look like a year from now? Second, again, look at outputs versus outcomes. Outputs are the number of hits you get and number of press releases. And that certainly is a metric, but it's not a valuable one. Outcomes are what matter. It's about increasing inbound inquiries and leads increases in social engagement or shifting perception, right? These are all metrics you need to identify at the beginning so that you can find the right tools to then measure them. Next, I would suggest give yourself a ballpark or a range for success, not a single point because PR is quite a bit of art and some magic dust, definitely not all science. And then find the right tools, right? The upshot is that there's lots of tools that you can get to measure PR in different ways. But the downside is that there's also a lot of tools that you can use to measure PR. So choose the right one. And then lastly, you know, measurement like reality, it has to be kind of fluid. You can't set it and forget it because there's always new opportunities and threats swirling around a company that may change your plan or your desired goals. So the metrics have to continue to be in alignment with reality. Those are really good pieces of advice. And one of the things I find in today's B2B SaaS landscape, we now have over 40,000 companies. There is so much noise and saturation in the marketplace. So CEOs and heads of marketing are looking for, how do I increase the amount of inbound leads from brand awareness, et cetera. And we're finding that those inbound leads are closing anywhere from 2.5 to 4X higher as a conversion rate than outbound demand generation, outbound leads. And I would think PR is a great channel for inbound leads. Do you agree, Sabrina? Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's matching the right kind of PR and the right sequence with other things in the marketing mix, you know, at the right time for the right company, right? I mean, that's where the alignment is is so critical. But yes, I mean, I inbound is key. I mean, that's earned media is the right way to try and achieve that. And it's very important to have in the mix, especially for early stage young companies. 
And one of the things we would recommend to all our founders out there is make sure you have those metrics set up for that earned media inbound leads versus what you're generating outbound with your sales development team or your strategic accounts program. And I think you'd be pretty interested in looking at the cost per dollar pipeline and then the cost of ARR. But let's pivot to the reason that I wanted to talk to you today, and that is your book. Make it, don't fake it. I'm going to go to I think chapter nine of your book, and you talked about the founder's curse. And this is a challenge I see so many B2B SaaS founders facing today, even when the market and quite frankly, their employees are providing many proof points and data points that they may be facing this. Can you elaborate a little bit on what is the founder's curse and how can we as founders be aware of it and not be blind to it? Sure. The founder's curse is what happens to entrepreneurs, founders, and even CEOs who are very close with the companies that they're leading. And it's this emotional bond that they have with the company, sort of like a parent and child relationship. But this is the situation. The child can do no wrong. Your baby is never ugly. And so what happens is you you have your blinders on and you don't listen to that valuable feedback about hey, you know, we need to like modify the product a little bit, or we should take a different marketing approach, or, you know, let's expand here or contract in another area of the business. And you're just not listening because you're so emotionally tied up with what you created. What can happen is that you'll miss those opportunities, right? And that can lead you to faking it on a whole different level. This can be very dangerous for the financial health of your business, your competitive edge, and your culture. But to answer the other part of your question, now how do you avoid that or how can you be aware? I believe it starts early, very early on in the journey. Set a plan with your investors and your team for milestones and markers that relate to your role and achievements. Consider a founder's employment agreement in the formation of your business and think about you know, a role that you could fulfill within your company at some point in the company's trajectory. Like you may be able to take your company from one to 10 million, but taking it from 10 to 100 is a whole different ball of wax that requires different skills. Next, I would recommend creating the safety net of mentors. And these are not people on your advisory board or your board of directors. These are you know, personal champions for you, but they're people who've been in your shoes and they're gonna give it to you straight and tell you what you need to hear, not what you wanna hear. And then two other things, I really am a big proponent of performance reviews and I believe no one is above a performance review, even a founder or a CEO. And that's a great way to get feedback. And then lastly, do an annual self-assessment and ask yourself some questions like, what does the future of my company need from its leadership, given where it's headed? And can I still help my company achieve those goals? Am I still having fun? Am I still providing value? And is that valuable? And am I in conflict with others? And why is that happening? So, you know, being honest with yourself and asking those questions can help you take those blinders off or keep them off and uh, avoid the founder's curse. Sabrina, you mentioned something in your book that I wanted to double click on here. And that is, you also said, surround yourself with a really strong executive team, but also not necessarily people like you who think like you, maybe same experiences. How do you go about having that confidence to hire people who will disagree with you and tell you, Sabrina, I don't agree with you because of this. Is that natural or do you develop that skill? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I developed it and it wasn't natural, right? There's a degree of insecurity there. You know, there's a tendency to hire people that are just like us. But if everybody's thinking the same way, then nobody's thinking. You really have to figure out what your own strengths and weaknesses are. And then based on that core, build up a leadership team around you of people who complement your weaknesses and amplify your strengths. I would also suggest, you know, that you make sure that the people that you bring on board are excited about the vision that you have and that they see coming to work with you as a real career opportunity and that they have their own opinions. But at the end of the day, you know, the buck stops with you and they have to respect your decision. And in, in terms of hiring, I mean, at that very, very core important level, you know, you, you want to know how that person resolves conflict and how they collaborate because you don't want any apples to spoil the whole fruit bowl. So, I mean, there's a lot more to that discussion than what I just said, but making sure that you've got that great core team of people is everything for building culture and building a strong brand. Yeah, you mentioned about hiring people who buy into the vision. The other thing you said, I believe it was page 47 of your book, was the founding values. How important are those founding values? And do they evolve and change over time, Sabrina? Or are the founding values just foundational to what your company is? Yeah, I mean, I can't stress that enough. Establishing those core values at the outset is vital because it it will infuse your culture how people treat each other, what you celebrate, what you won't tolerate, and it will infuse every single business process, or it should, right? If your one of your values is creativity, then how is that going to be infused in your customer service function? Or if your value is quality, you know, how does that manifest itself in your product? And in other processes, like, you know, fact checking to make sure there's no typos in your documents. So whatever it is, right? It is critical. Now, over time, as a company grows, those values can evolve. And it's not that they go away, but maybe they shift in their meaning or in their priority. And that certainly happened to us over our 25-year history, and that's perfectly normal. But the key is to have them at the outset to begin with. Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to dig into was when you founded the company, right? You were four years of corporate experience, had never been a CEO. So you were a founder and you had to become a CEO. And I think you also covered this in your book. Tell us a little bit about what that journey is like to becoming a CEO. Is it a intentional, I got to learn this, this, and this as far as a way to conduct this part of the business? Or is it a journey that you just continue to evolve as you gain experience? Yeah, I'm, I firmly believe that it's a continuous liberal arts education and business. <laughs> you never stop becoming a CEO. You're always becoming, uh, you're always learning. And of course, there are fantastic MBA and leadership programs that you can take and learn, but you got to, in some ways, like gotta, you got to do it, right? You've got to do the job. You learn on the job and every day brings new problems, new challenges, new market dynamics that affect your business. And so you're constantly on your feet, you know, and learning something new every day. And what worked yesterday may not work tomorrow. So, I mean, that's, that's not for the faint of heart. And that's why I, I subscribe to having a good safety net of people you can talk to and trying to establish some kind of a balance between work and family life. But, uh, you know, it can throw you and you have to develop a sense of resilience and bounce back 
from what inevitably will be quite a few losses and times where you didn't make the right decision as well. Yeah. And the one common thing I hear from so many founders and first-time CEOs is their surprise by how lonely the CEO job is. Mm. That at the end of the day, no matter what type of collaborative, consensus-oriented decision-making you try to create within your organization, at the end of the day, the decisions rest on your shoulders. And having that safety net or network of advisors, et cetera, is really critical for your own mental well-being. Do you agree with that? It's also the psychological part that's so damn hard, Sabrina? Yeah. I mean, that the CEO loneliness is a real thing. And it may be difficult for you know, other people to understand that, but you are by definition as the CEO, the only one with that title in your company. It is a lonely place to be. You make a lot of decisions that you alone have to make. And when they're hard decisions that are unpopular, you feel isolated. You know, Your employees, they don't want to go out with you on Thursday night after work because you're the boss. You know, <laughs> So it can eat away at you. You can develop anxiety and from there it gets worse. And so you have to do things to combat that and almost expect it. Human connection is essential for mental wellness and developing that network of people you can talk to finding peer groups in the industry of other CEOs, you know, that you can speak with and acts of gratitude, man, like, you know, thanking people or teaching a class is a way of connecting and sort of getting grounded again and chipping away at the, what I call the isolation iceberg. I, well, I love one of the things you just said, right? Teaching, give back before you might think it's time to give back. I really love that as a way of connecting. But I wanted to go into a story that you told in the book. And I love storytelling. In fact, I've had a couple of guests on the podcast that talk about the power of storytelling. And the one that really resonated with me was when you went to IBM. <laughs> back when Big Blue was the firm everybody wanted as a customer, right? Yeah. Can you share, remember what, share this story at a high level and how did that help you learn from negative experiences or even losses? And then the next part of that, after you share the story, how do you ensure as a CEO, you don't get focused too much on the negative or looking to assign blame and fault when you're trying to learn from those losses? Sure. Okay. Well, I think that will go down as the in history as the worst sales pitch ever. We were pitching IBM because they were the sponsor of the upcoming Olympics. And it was in 1996. So they, IBM was going to be the information systems provider for the Olympics. And we were pitching that account. And I had just come off of a whirlwind press tour, turned around on a red eye and flew back to the East Coast to Armonk to meet my colleague and present you know, our recommendations. And back then we had just gotten a color printer. Like that was like the big deal of the day. And we were presenting on transparencies, which was also the technology of the day. And I was so excited about these overheads that we had because they were in color and they were beautiful. And, <laughs> and I went into this room, which was just, it was like being in a closet. It was just the worst room possible at IBM headquarters. And we had to project our, our beautiful overhead transparencies like on the corner of this room, which distorted the words on the screen. And so people were kind of cocking their heads to the side and couldn't really see. And I was sort of thrown off my rocker by that, but also because the guy who was the head of marketing or the decision maker, he didn't show up until halfway through the meeting and interrupted me a lot. He's like flipping through the deck, like, so, you know, what's the budget? 
Where are your big ideas? I don't see any strategy. Where's the strategy? And I stood there looking at this projector, right? I'm looking down at these overheads and I'm so utterly exhausted. And the guys just rattled my cage and I have no flow and I just start to cry. And the tears are falling on to my overhead transparencies and bleeding the colors and the ink on the slides. And so everybody's like looking up at the ceiling, wondering like, is there a leak, right? And I've got my hair down sort of on one side so people couldn't see me cry. And at this point, I'm just, you know, it's like a leaky faucet. I can't turn it off. And so my colleague, Elizabeth, she just stood up and she gently came over and touched my shoulder and she said, Sam, I think it's time to go. (laughs) And so we just walked out and the other people that were left in there sort of, I guess, felt uncomfortable or embarrassed. And the big guy, I don't know what became of him, but uh, went to the bathroom and sobbed my eyes out. And I don't know, we flew back home to San Francisco. And I I remember drinking a lot of Chardonnay on that flight. (laughs) Yeah. So that you know, that was that was the worst experience because I had humiliated myself and my firm and I wasn't able to come back and sort of take control of that meeting. And what did you learn from that? And how yeah. did you evolve as a CEO from that experience? Yeah, well, uh, number one, never go on a huge road show and then turn around and do a, another big presentation within 24 hours. But secondly, what I learned was to learn from that mistake by getting everybody together. And I did a postmortem and I just said like, you know, was there any way we could have handled that situation differently? And I learned humility in that experience. And I believe it is a superpower in leadership to take responsibility for what went wrong and you're part of it and suggest you know how we could have done it differently what i could have done differently what have we learned and then most importantly in a postmortem is to institutionalize those learnings into new processes otherwise you know the whole discussion is pointless but that i think is just so key and i've carried that with me forward to this day well, I'm sure you got waterproof ink the next time for those transparencies, huh? <laughs> I saved those transparencies. You know, we a lot of us, you know, we feel this kind of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a phrase I've heard for the last two or three years. And a lot of early stage entrepreneurs, first-time CEOs talk about that. And to me, sometimes if you've had some success, you've grown your company to 5 million, 10 million, and hit a roadblock, you kind of have to ask yourself, am I the right person to keep leading this company? And you think about succession planning, but if it's your baby, just even think about somebody else who's going to love it, as you said, like your children. So how do you recommend CEOs who are facing some obstacles? Maybe they're questioning whether they are or not the right person to take it forward. Is there any kind of advice or even framework you give them for having that discussion with themselves? Yeah, it's an excellent point. And, you know, you got to listen to yourself when you start to feel that little green man on your shoulder. And it's not just your instinct. It's really what you know that maybe you're getting to the end of the line with regard to, you know, what you came here to do. And an entrepreneur is all about creating, but it's also about letting go and starting something new. Like Michelangelo created David and he went on to create the Sistine Chapel. So you're free to go and create as many masterpieces as you want. And I think that's something that a lot of founders and entrepreneurs forget about, right? That it's okay 
to take on a different role within your company or to just come up with a plan to exit stage left and maybe stay on as an advisor. But like it happens all the time and there's nothing wrong with it. But you do need to prepare your leadership team and your board for that. But better that you do it than having somebody else do it for you, right? Yes. Many a CEO have come to that discussion with their chairman of the board and they were like, really? I didn't understand. That's a really difficult discussion to have that you weren't aware of your own limitations or that you had tapped out, so to speak. Oh, that's the worst. And then it becomes contentious potentially and, and unpleasant. And that's a terrible way for a founder to exit. So take it on yourself to initiate the process instead. You know, and you've had this experience that we're going to talk about next, Sabrina, before we have to wrap up in today's episode. But you got to the point where you thought maybe the Horn Group, your baby that you had ran for over 20, almost 25 years, needed to become a member of a larger entity and you sold the company. And I believe you stayed on for a while. How do you go through that decision of if your company does get acquired to stay in, but not being the person? Yeah, boy, that was that was big for me. After 24 years of being my own boss, it was difficult to imagine working for someone else. But I prepared myself for it because I knew it would be hard. And I certainly did my due diligence about my acquirer and I developed friendships, if you will, or kind of mentoring types of relationships with some of the other entrepreneurs that were inside that organization so that I didn't feel like I was the only one on that new planet. And I visualized like what it might be like. I assured myself quite a bit. I suffered from imposter syndrome too, because suddenly there were all these people who thought I was going to, you know, walk in the room and the show will start, you know, and I didn't know who any of them were. I thought their expectations were way too high. And it sort of, it bugged me and it affected my confidence. I'll be, I'll be honest. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to absolutely prepare yourself for that. And of course the key is finding the right acquirer and having an acquirer who will give you some latitude of autonomy within your new role or, you know, the new situation as it were. Yeah, Sabrina, I heard what you just said, and I find it hard to believe, though I do believe it, that someone as accomplished as you, people look at the Horn Group and what you built in the B2B PR world as she is a thought leader, she is a pioneer. But even you had that internal doubt, even at that advanced experience and success that you had. Yeah, I mean, I I did. And um, I mentioned it, I think only briefly in the book, but I've been talking about it quite more frequently now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say for the first year out of the three years that I was there, I was really out of my element. I didn't know what they all expected of me. There were all these people who I didn't know, like CC'd on my email. I'm like, who are these people? And in my particular role, I was no longer in charge of my own PL because I had sold my company. And I also didn't want to be in charge of operations anymore. I was kind of done with that after 24 years. So I had to learn how to be a leader with influence and no control, which was a really important exercise for me to go through, but not one I was accustomed to. <laughs> and so, you know, I focused on this and that, and I, I reassured myself. I met with Peter Finn many times, and we had good conversations. And, you know, he's an entrepreneur too. So I got some comfort from him. And ultimately, I shook off the little green man on my, on my shoulder. But uh, it took me by surprise, I got to say. 
It's interesting. You have some responsibility, but not the control. It's an experience I've been going through with my young adult children, right? They're in college, they're developing their independence. Now they've started their career and it's totally in their control. And I'll tell you, as a this generation parent, that's an uncomfortable feeling with your children too, is you still feel the responsibility, but you sure in the heck don't have a control. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think we can advise and give them our opinion, but they've got to make their own decisions. And, you know, we raise our children to become independent adults. So if they are doing that, then I guess we've done our job. Uh, But it's hard. It's hard to let go. Just like we talked about before, like if you're a founder, it's hard to let go of your baby, you know? Well, we're going to have to wrap up, but we're going to give the listening audience a chance to get to know Sabrina on a personal level, even a little bit more. And you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of very successful B2B tech CEOs and companies. Is there a company in 2021 or a CEO that you think is a must follow for our listeners? Yeah, you probably know this gentleman. His name is Jay Fulcher. And he's, I think, a four or five times CEO. He's now the CEO of Zenefits. And he's turned that company around big time. And they are doing some very, very interesting things in the HR space for small businesses, which in particular right now and this year have been hit so hard by the pandemic. So I think he's a great leader and one to watch. Interesting. You said Jay, Sabrina, because I didn't know who you were going to say when I asked you the question, but Jay had a post about a year ago on LinkedIn. Yeah. And it was one of the most read, viewed, and liked posts I've seen on LinkedIn for a long time. And it was basically along the lines of, you know, make it, don't fake it. He's like, quit giving people advice about how easy it is to grow a company. It's hard work and there's going to be a lot of painful mistakes, et cetera. So stop listening to all these fake kind of influencers out there and just go and do the hard work and be willing to learn from your mistakes. So Jay's a great, great follow. Yeah. You know, I I saw that post and I reached out to him when I saw that and we got to talking. It led to him contributing a quote for the back of my book. And he's coming out with a book too, actually, at the same day as me called People Operations. So I think he's a terrific leader. Well, Jeffrey Moore, the author of Founding the Chasm on your forward and Jay Fulter on the back. That's a pretty good company you're keeping, Sabrina. Yes. Well, and also our good friend, Dave Duffield and uh, a few other luminaries. Yeah. And by the way, for everyone who hasn't heard it, it's Make It, Don't Fake It, written by Sabrina Horn. And Sabrina, when's it going to be published for the listening audience to get a chance to read it? Sure. Well, you anybody can order it now in print, digital, or audiobook, but it will be officially released in two weeks on June 22nd. June 22nd. Mark it on your calendars. Hey, another question. Is there a tool that you think every B2B tech company should be using today to help run their business? One that you just oh. love. Yeah. I mean, actually I could recommend one that's okay, but I, I think that having a diversity equity and inclusion app to help you source disadvantaged talent is the order of the day. And uh, there's a great company called Frontier Signal. That is a startup that is making a SaaS solution just for that. And uh, I think that is the right thing to do at this point in history. Well, that's interesting because I just had a guest last week and we haven't published her episode yet, but we were talking about stakeholder capitalism and ESG and diversity and inclusion. I see this being huge business opportunity, number one, 
for the companies because they're inherently going to see performance improvements by having a more diverse and inclusive workforce. And number two, I think both from a platform and from consulting and learning businesses, huge opportunity. Because honestly, I think it's a skill that the muscle memory really hasn't been developed very deeply yet. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, it's about time, right? So now I think we're going to see a whole slew of DEI sorts of solutions coming onto the market and other existing vendors adding that on. So, and I think that's a great development. Well, the last question is you've had a chance to experience this personally with your two daughters. And I just had my daughter graduate university last weekend. And, And the question is, What advice would you give a recent college graduate or an early career professional who wants to be the next great, I'll say B2B SaaS or SaaS services founder and CEO? I would say a couple things. Know what you don't know and do your homework. Leave your ego at the door while you're doing that and ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen and how you'll recover so that you can kind of hope for the best and plan for the worst, right? And then establish your core values from the outset, either, you know, what you want you and your company to stand for and believe in to carry you forward. And lastly, don't fake it because you won't make it. (laughs) Okay, there you have it. Sabrina Horn author of Make It, Don't Fake It. And that's a wrap to today's episode. And if you're enjoying the guests and the content we discuss here on the Metrics to Measure Up podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app and provide us a rating and comments on how we can make the content even better for you. Sabrina, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.